Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight. The importance of uh, kind of standardizing data elements across different health systems so that for research purposes, it can uh, be easier to share and do uh, large research um, such as federated learning. Today, Drs. Nuttleman and you joined the podcast to discuss topics from the 2023 Annual Meeting of the Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology Insights in this first part of a two-part series of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Regeneron is pleased to support this educational resource for the healthcare professionals who provide retinal care. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the views of Regeneron or its affiliates. Hi, everybody. I'm Eric Noodleman. I'm an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Shiley Institute at the University of California in San Diego. And I have the pleasure of being joined today by Dr. Glenn Yu. Hi, uh, I'm Glenn Yu. Uh, thanks, Eric, for uh, the introduction. I'm a uh, professor of ophthalmology at the UC Davis Eye Center. Uh, I'm also a retina specialist, just like you. Uh, and uh, it's great to uh, be here today. So you and I both uh, attended Arvo 2023 in New Orleans. And we had a few days now to think about topics and the data that was presented at the meeting. And I want to discuss with you what you found interesting and what may be of interest or useful for our colleagues and in, uh, in Retina. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, what did what did you think about the this year's meeting compared to last year? Well, first of all, I thought it was uh, the attendance was seemed to be way up. Uh, there was a lot of people there. It felt crowded. It felt energetic. Um, all of the sessions seemed that I, that I went to seem, um, like there were not a lot of empty seats, uh, which was a, a big change from, from last year. And it was also nice to see everybody without their masks on. Uh, I felt like a lot of the COVID restrictions were, were lifted. Yeah, I definitely saw some sessions where people were like piling in the hallway or trying to get seats. Uh, and, uh, one thing that a lot of people noticed was that the the aisles and the posters, maybe they were just a little bit more narrow than usual, but there was very, very crowded. And But it does also kind of gave the sense that there was a lot more engagement uh, and interactive in the meeting this year. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It seemed like there was a lot of energy. So what interesting themes or topics did you find that was particularly interesting this year? Uh, there's a few things that I thought were uh, top-line data. Um, there was some interesting uh, data from the GA studies. Um, there was some new data from some of the gene therapy trials. Um, I attended some of the diabetic retinopathy sessions, which I thought were uh, really uh, interesting and, and helpful. I also thought that there was a whole lot of AI energy at the meeting. What did you think, Glenn? Uh, yeah, I actually, um, one of the other findings, it was funny because one of uh, uh, our previous sessions here uh, was talking about diversity, and Mike Chang actually led a joint uh, program with the National Eye Institute uh, on diversity and representation in uh, in ophthalmology in general. Um, so there were some interesting talks there, not just about uh, inclusion of minorities in clinical trials, but uh, I think Sally Baxter gave a nice talk on data standards and the importance of uh, kind of standardizing data elements across different health systems so that for research purposes, it can uh, be easier to share and do uh, large research um, such as federated learning and so on. Um, you mentioned, um, Eric, about some top-line data from uh, GA studies. 
what are your thoughts? Because obviously complement inhibitors are at the top of everybody's mind. We've got Cyfovri that was just recently uh, um, uh, FDA approved. So what are your thoughts on the, on the new results from all the different companies? Yeah, thanks for asking. First of all, Glenn, thanks for mentioning uh, Sally. She She's in our department, as you know, um, and we're actually having a DEI potluck this evening. So um, I'm happy to hear that she was participating in that um, in that session. And um, and I and I do agree that highlighting the importance of DEI in clinical studies is um, is really a priority for uh, for a lot of companies as well as for the National Institute. So I'm happy to hear that Sally was participating. So the, the GA studies, um, yeah, it's. We, we do have the approval of Cyfovery. Um, I did see uh, the GA session. I think the thing that was uh, most compelling to me was um, the uh, the changes in visual acuity at uh, at one year. Um, the the data that was presented was five letters, roughly five letters at one year, which were preserved in the patients that were treated. Um, I thought that that was uh, was uh, new information to me. In my conversations with patients at this point, I'm not really discussing with them the uh, retention of their visual acuity. And so it was really helpful to have a number of what, what we could expect at one year. What did you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I think up to now, as you said, we've been talking about thinking about these GA drugs as complement inhibitors, as primarily an anatomy thing. It, it reduces the growth and it seems very theoretical. It's abstract to patients, but uh, I think it's nice, and I think it really was just a matter of time, right? Obviously, a lot of these studies included uh, foveal-involving GA, so we would expect the, the visual acuity data to get dampened until you give it more time, you let those curves diverge a lot more, and then you start to now see the visual benefits. So I'm very excited to see some of those results. Um, I was also uh, interested to see that there uh, some uh, discussion, there was a talk, I think, on metformin, which is obviously not a complement inhibitor. It's an easy, it's a, it's a diabetic drug already approved. Uh, there was a lot of interest around it. Um, and unfortunately, the, for the use of, for geographic atrophy, it didn't seem to have any benefit, but there's some interest apparently now in looking at it for earlier stages of dry AMD, like intermediate AMD. Um, and the other drug that I also um, saw some posters about, I think, was elamifertide, which is actually going away from complement inhibitors to mitochondrial um, pathways. Um, and th those uh, uh, studies were very interesting as well, particularly focusing on uh, uh, outer retinal layers, I think work from Justice Ehlers, um, rather than just GA area as potential outcome, uh, uh, clinical outcomes for GA studies. Um, Eric, you also mentioned some work on uh, diabetic retinopathy uh, that was being presented uh, what, what what session did you attend? So there were a couple of diabetic retinopathy sessions that I thought were uh, were interesting. Um, probably the one that was the most um, uh, immediately applicable was the data on furosemide. Um, so there was some uh, furosemide data presented by Roger Goldberg, uh, which uh, described the uh, leakage as measured by fluorescein angiography uh, in the period of time in uh, the Yosemite and Rhine trials, which were head-to-head. -head. Uh, and what they showed was that there was uh, significantly reduced uh, leakage uh, directly at the time when they were treated head-to-head, uh, -head, so direct comparison. 
And that reduced leakage resulted in uh, better visual acuity uh, and reduced amount of uh, intraretinal fluid at one year. So this data is part, particularly interesting to me because um, having reduced leakage early, um, some people have, have questioned whether um, this was due to an increased um, concentration of the anti-VEGF versus the effect of the ANCH2. And uh, Roger showed data from uh, two other studies, one from uh, Regeneron and one from Genentech, where there was 4x dosing of ILEA or 4x of ranibizumab, and there was not reduced leakage. So it looks like uh, it really is from the ANCH2 effect. Um, and they also showed some, uh, some animal studies where if you inject uh, a VEGF, you have increased leakage. This is the the miles assay, and in a ANCH2 deficient animal, there is less leakage. So all of that sort of supported this idea of um, an additive effect with the additional mechanism of action of the ANCH2 inhibition. So Glenn, there was, uh, there was a lot of new gene therapy data that was also presented. Uh, wh what were your thoughts from, from those talks? Yeah, definitely. There are, gene therapy continues to be obviously an area of my particular interest. And it's very exciting on top of everybody's minds because now we've got more and more injection options and the, the prospect of, the, of a single gene therapy treatment that will last theoretically forever is extremely compelling. Um, we're now seeing some, I think uh, the uh, Regenex Bio uh, RGX314 platform, um, they had some of these four-year outcome data now. So over four years, they showed continued efficacy uh, where there's uh, still a significant reduction in the number of injections these patients. Not everybody goes completely injection-free, obviously, for the four years, uh, but a significant number um, had many, many fewer injections than previously uh, and uh, previously noted, um, suggesting that these gene therapies can last at least over the course of four years. Um, there's some exciting data also, um, early data from the 4D150 platform for, for, from 4D MT. Unlike the RGX314 program or the Adverum ADBM022 platform, both of which are AAVs that essentially makes something that looks like a flibercept or something that looks like ranibizumab, uh, the 4D150 platform is also an intravitreal AAV but it's used to make like an miRNA, an, an, an RNA interference type platform. Uh, and that's also really compelling, um, especially since um, it looks like because of their new capsid, which is a unique capsid, it's called an R100 variant. Supposedly it was uh, um, derived in kind of non-human primate rather than in rodents. So it's supposed to be much more trophic when given intravitreally. They were able to get a lot lower doses than what was reported for some of the other platforms. And because of that, we, you know, a, a lot of us are worried about inflammation with gene therapy and being able to get away with lower doses potentially uh, can lead to uh, a safer platform. But only time will tell. They're still in early phases. So I, I'd love to see what comes out of that um, from that uh, platform. Yeah, I thought that that was an exciting uh, talk, the one on the PRISM trial. And uh, one thing that's really uh, compelling about it is that it's an intravitreal injection as opposed to subretinal or supracoroidal. And with that low dose to get efficacy uh, without inflammation really, uh, really uh, lends itself to being scalable for in-office treatment. Would you agree with that, Glenn? 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think uh, if it can be done intravitrally, even though it's not like we don't know how to do a subretinal injections, but I think most patients will be more amenable to getting a shot in the clinic versus going to the OR uh, to have that done. Thank you. And please join us for part two of this discussion about Arvo 2023. And that's today's Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this first part of a two-part series of the PV Roundup podcast. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Drs. Noodlin and you. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.